Father, you know what a great week I have had this week as I have been able to spend all week in one verse of the Bible. One verse that we're going to look at today that if ever a verse was so incredibly rich in meaning and in direction to our lives on a spiritual and a relational and even a tangible level, this verse is it. So Father, as I've been immersed in it and I'm fired up about it and have been changed by it, I pray now that that might be, be transferred to these folks here. That as we spend some time plumbing the depths and parsing out what you have said to us in written form, that it might penetrate not just our minds, but into our hearts and then obviously into our behavior, our wills this week. So God, change us from the inside out, we pray. Thank you for the worship that has set us up to know you and love you and follow you. We pray these things only and always in Jesus' holy and precious name. The whole church says together, amen. So check this out. This I know is true about just about every one of us here this morning, and that is that all of us love to see action when it is most needed, right? All of us love to see action when it's most needed. So for instance, if a marriage is really struggling and going south and, and, and a couple are kind of like at this with each other, we know that it's going to take either one or both of them to have a timely piece of action for the thing to work out. And I'm sorry or a change in behavior or something like that. And we love to see things like that. Or when a business is struggling to make it in a tough economy like ours is right now, we all know that it's decisive action that stands the best chance of a save-the-day kind of turnaround. Or how about when a kid, maybe your kid, is going through an incredibly destructive behavior pattern, just doing something that you know is going to hurt them in the long run. I mean, many times it's, it's action on the part of a parent, a loving parent, that kind of saves the day and turns things around. We all love to see action. Or how about for me in my life right now, the Cleveland Browns who just can't seem to win a game. I mean, you know, it seems to be their story like year after year after year. And we've been waiting for some form of action. And I think we're just going to continue to wait. And now that I'm in Phoenix, I think I'm in good company. Anyways, I know that was so unfair, but true. No, actually, the Cardinals are doing really well, and it's fun to watch them. Well, we're all familiar with this. We're all familiar with the fact that it's action that we respect, that it's action that we like to see, again, in a timely and an opportune way. And so if you can relate to this at all, and you can, then you can understand what this next series that we're in is all about, what the second half of the book of First Peter is all about. If you were with us in this last series that we just finished last month, month you know that we spent the better part of nine weeks through the summer and into the fall, looking at 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2, in which Peter lays out for us what the people of God, the church, you and me, look like. Do you remember that? In other words, what we believe, what makes us Christians, what binds us together. And so Peter walked us through such topics as what our identity is as a church, what our salvation is all about, what our holiness looks like, what love is, even what submission is all about. The whole series is all about describing for us what God's people are about, who we are as ones who follow Jesus and now meet together on a regular basis. But what you need to know is that as we get to the second half of this power pack little little letter now, Peter all of a sudden switches from like second gear into fourth as he describes for us now what the people of God look like in motion. In other words, it's action that he's after. What God's people do now that we know who they are. How they function when it comes to some of the more relevant and practical areas of living life this side of heaven. And so, for example, he's going to talk to us, as we're already seeing, about marital relationships. 
He's going to talk to us about how to do, about how to do good in a culture that doesn't always care. He's going to talk to us about how to deal with those nagging sinful patterns that you and I both deal with that seem to pop their ugly heads up from now, every t- now and then. He's going to talk to us about how to find joy in our pain. He's even going to talk to us about how to be humble finally in our lives. You get the picture. Really practical, rubber-meeting-the-road kind of issues that you and I deal with every day in trying to follow God as His people. And so last week, Dr. Wayne Grudem, one of my favorite seminary professors from my time at Trinity Seminary in Chicago back in the 1980s, and now an elder and Sunday school teacher here at Scottsdale Bible, he led off this series by talking to us about wives submitting to husbands, which is the first part of 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6 there. And all I can say is that I am so glad it was him and not me. Amen? I mean, what a timely place for a study break, if you ask me. And, and, and I got to tell you, if you were put on the spot and you had to get up here and talk about what wives submitting to husbands with like more than half women here, you'd be thankful for Wayne as well. And all kidding aside, he did a fantastic job. I reviewed his message in helping us understand and apply the text. And it would not be an overstatement to say that there is no one more theologically and personally qualified to speak on this passage than Dr. Wayne Grudem. And I'm so thankful that he did this. Amen? He did an awesome job. And so today, I now get the privilege of addressing the men here, husbands, how to view and love your wife in such a way that is going to deepen your relationship with her, honor God, and as we're going to see, maybe even give you some spiritual growth in the process. And I want to let you know up front that all of you are going to take something from this this morning. I promise you that. Because all of you have women in your life, right? All of you either have a wife or a mother or a fiancé or a daughter or a close friend. And God is going to give us some rich wisdom here, not just for husbands, though it's directed to husbands, but for all of us on how to treat and view the women in our life. And so without any further introduction, here's the main point that Peter gives us. Here's what you need to tuck securely into your relational and spiritual tool belt from this point on. And that is that a husband should be a student of his wife, ever learning who she is and how God has uniquely made her. Let me repeat that. I know it's a mouthful, but this is what we need to focus on here this morning. This is life-giving. A husband, Peter's going to tell, should be a student of his wife all the days of his life ever learning who she is and how God has uniquely made her. So look at how Peter says this to us in the one verse that we're looking at here this morning, short but power-packed. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her or to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, Wayne had to deal with the submission issue last week, but you'll notice that I have to deal with this weaker vessel issue, right? But don't worry, we will. And before we get to that, and we will, focus on that operative phrase here in the beginning when he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Fascinating phrase, understanding way. The New International Version, which is a very fine and readable translation, quite frankly, misses the intent of this passage when it translates it, be considerate as you live with your wives. And the reason that this misses the mark is is because in the literal Greek language that the New Testament was written in, this is the Greek word genosin, which literally means, now get this, to have knowledge about something. That's all it means. 
to know the truth about something or someone, to know them. And not just factually or intellectually, but to know them experientially, personally, and intimately. That's what Peter's after. It's fascinating, this word gnosin and all of its derivatives that appears like a lot of times in the New Testament as well as in the Greek version of the Old Testament known as a Septuagint. And in the King James Version, it uses this same word in Genesis 4, chapter 1, I get this, to say, and Adam knew Eve and she bore a son, Cain. Adam knew Genosin, Eve, and she bore a son, Cain. You get the picture here. That he knew her intimately and experientially. Here obviously referring to sex. And she bore a son. Please see, this word goes way beyond mere head knowledge and challenges us to a deep and rich and experiential kind of knowledge. That's what Peter's after. And so it's no coincidence then that when you get to 1 Peter 3, 7, listen to how the King James translates this passage. This is helpful for us. It says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. According to knowledge. That is probably the best translation you will get of 1 Peter 3, 7. According to experiential, personal, intimate knowledge. Men, that's how you're to dwell with your wives. Not just being considerate, but know them in an understanding, ever-learning kind of way. And that's precisely what Peter's getting at here, folks. He's saying, as you live with your wives, and you do live with them, do so in such a way that you're constantly learning about her. Constantly delving deeper and deeper into who she really is and how she really functions. He's saying, don't buy into that garbage that men are from Venus and women are from Mars, but bite the bullet. Enter into the fray and really start to get to know her. No more excuses. Who she really is. How God has wired her. Her hopes and her dreams. Even her dashed hopes and her shattered dreams. Peter's saying live with her in an understanding way. Ever increasing in your knowledge of her. And then the only question becomes, once you get this and feel the weight of it, is, well, Peter, what is it that we're supposed to understand? In other words, what is it that we're supposed to increase in our knowledge of? And in addition to a myriad of things that the Bible talks about, folks, Peter goes on to mention two key things here. And one of them is like really easy to get. And the other one is like a bit more dicey and harder to get. So let's deal with the dicey one first, the more difficult one first. And notice that Peter says, as a way to understand your wife, to honor her or show honor as the weaker vessel. Understand that she is more weaker than you on some kind of level. And let's just say right off the bat that this is a loaded phrase if there ever was one. Amen? I mean, if you go home today and say to your wife, hey, weaker vessel, how you doing? You're going to get hit, right? And so the reality is this is like a very uncomfortable phrase that Peter uses here, like weaker vessel. What's that about? So let's spend a few moments trying to clearly understand what Peter is saying here before we jump to any conclusions or before you get mad at the pastor. And to help do this, I want us all, and this is going to be kind of fun for you, to take a very short multiple quiz, multiple choice quiz right now to draw out what Peter might be getting at here, okay? And so on this multiple choice quiz that I'm going to put up on the screen here in just a minute, I'm going to give you a statement followed by A, B, C, and D, and you get to choose for each one, A, B, C, and D, whether that is true or not, whether that accurately finishes a statement or not, okay? 
So just bear with me and either use your notes or just jot it away in your head where when I give you the statement A, B, C, or D, are any or all of these true? Which ones of these are true or not? And then we'll put it together in the end. So here we go. Here's the statement. Generally speaking, women are not as strong as men. And here's A, physically. Yes or no? True or not? Put a check mark or an X by this, either in your mind or on your notes, that generally speaking, women are not as strong as men physically. And before we go any further, please know, and i got to make this very clear, that I'm saying generally speaking. In other words, when you look at all the women in the world, and then you look at all the men in the world, is it generally true, for this example, that men tend to be stronger than women? And the reason that's important is because I know how you guys function. Invariably, somebody's going to come up to me after today's service and say, I know a woman that could take you. I know a woman that can beat you up. And you need to know that my answer is going to be, I believe you. That I'm sure there are some women out there that can take me. I was out golfing the other day with another couple and she beat me. She outdrove me every hole. It happens. Not often, but it happens. And so please don't give me these anecdotes. I know that there are examples out there of where this isn't true, but generally speaking, answer the question. And then here's B. Now hang in with me. Generally speaking, women are not as strong as men morally. In other words, they are weaker when it comes to being able to resist temptation, make moral choices, and stand behind their morality. Yes or no? Just put a check mark or an X. Third, generally speaking, women are not as strong as men mentally. In other words, intellectually, thinking-wise, ability to rationalize, yes or no. Put a check mark or an X there. And then finally, D, generally speaking, women are not as strong as men emotionally. Now, this one's more tricky, I know. Just answer it, yes or no, check mark or an X. So we got four options there of what Peter might be getting at here. Physically, morally, mentally, or emotionally. One, maybe more than that. What is he saying here? And what I want to do right now is review these one by one with you. And as I do, I'm going to share with you what the Bible experts from the past and now, and I consulted almost a dozen of them, say that Peter is getting at here or not getting at, okay? So let's take the most obvious one, A, physically. And what you need to know is that just about every Bible expert on 1 Peter posits that at the very least, and some say at the very most, that Peter is referencing here the fact that women, by their physical makeup, are indeed not as strong as men. And that men, we need to know and understand this because God commands us to be protectors and providers of our families and homes. So he's saying honor them as the weaker vessel, weaker physically just by their physical makeup. And I think we would all agree that this is probably true. It's fascinating. Commentators feel like they have to defend this. So Peter David's probably one of the most foremost experts on the book of 1 Peter alive today, points out that this word vessel is used like a dozen other times in the Greek, old, the Greek version of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and that in almost every case it refers to some physical or material type of vessel, whether a clay pot or a piece of furniture. And so almost surely, he says, Peter, at the very least, he believes at the very most, is referring to the physical aspect of a woman here. That we're to protect and provide. And this could indeed be the sum total of what Peter is getting at here. But let's look at the other ones too. Moving on to B and C, morally and mentally, you'll be happy to know that there isn't one Bible expert that I could find that would dare assert that men are stronger than women morally or mentally. Amen? They're smart men. None of them 
suggest that this is what Peter is getting at. And I would even add that we all know women, and this is just true, who are actually stronger in their convictions, stronger in their reasoning and mental acuity than the men that they have ended up with, right? We don't need to say any more about that, but we just know. I mean, seriously, we laugh, but you all are thinking of someone right now. You know couples, you know situations in which, you know, both godly people, but she tends to be stronger mentally, or she tends to be stronger in her moral convictions, and and that's just the way God has wired some women. So I don't think this is what Peter can be getting at. I put an X by both of these. So we have a check by physical, an X by mental and moral. But what about D? What about emotionally? Now listen very close. It is certainly true that there are a vast number of women who obviously demonstrate tremendous emotional strength, even surpassing their husbands. So in one sense, one could not argue that women are weaker emotionally in men, especially when it comes to emotional stamina and even emotional resolve. But in another sense, think about it with me, I think we would all agree, however, that women are, generally speaking, emotionally, more emotionally sensitive than men. Can you own this with me this morning? I mean, generally speaking, it's my observation that women are more in touch with their feelings, they're more attuned to their emotional climate around them, and they're better at the fineries of relationship than most men. In fact, if you were to ask my wife, Kim, she would say that at the age of 44, I tend to still be a clueless clod when it comes to certain emotional and relational things, and that she tends to be the Michael Jordan of the realm. Do you all understand what I mean? So she would say that Jamie still has trouble doing a layup and she hits regular three-pointers when it comes to this. I just think that's true, generally speaking, about men and women. And so what some Bible experts argue is that this trait of a woman is both a great blessing, obviously, but also a great vulnerability for a woman. That a woman, because of her heightened emotional sensitivity, will tend to take things more personal and to heart on an emotional level. She'll be more likely to get hurt on an emotional level, more likely to feel pain and fatigue in emotional situations of this world. And so could Peter also be getting at this as well? Could he be challenging the men in his audience and to us now to honor women, not just in their physical vulnerability, but in their emotional vulnerability as well? And to get to know them and love them and honor them in that shore up their weaknesses in times when they most need it. I think this is what Peter is getting at here. And if this indeed is what he's getting at, men, then what a great and wonderful challenge this is to you and to me and understanding and loving our wives. I mean, what a great thing for us to spend the rest of our lives doing. You know, there's been a sad thing that's occurred in, in our evangelical culture, lots of sad things, quite frankly, but a but real sad thing over the last 30 or 40 years, and that is that we've changed the vows subtly at weddings. Have you ever noticed that? It used to be in weddings that we would say to a man when we would be giving his vows before him, that I as a minister would say that you are to love, honor, and cherish till death do you part. Now we still say that to men, but we now say the exact same thing to women. What do we used to say for women? To love, honor, and obey. But you see, we know better today, and we don't like that word, and so we've taken that word out. I'm being sarcastic. Read like dripping sarcasm into that. We've, we've taken that word out, and so now, in most evangelical, Bible-believing churches, when you see a wedding done, it will be to love, honor, and cherish for both partners. 
And you know what that does? Is that in part, that diminishes the call for a man to uniquely and wonderfully cherish his wife. i got to believe that 200 years ago, 300 years ago, when they started coming up with these modern vows that we have nowadays in our Western world, that when they sat down and say, to love, honor, oh, that's right, and a man needs to uniquely cherish, to uniquely protect and provide and honor and value his wife, in her, all her femininity, in all her emotional and physical makeup. That's the vow that we took, men. And I would submit to you that we don't just get to know her and acknowledge this in this area, but we get to honor her in her uniqueness. That's the command here, to increasingly understand our wives in her emotional and in their physical vulnerability. That's the command here. Now, we're going to put all this together in just a moment, But isn't it fascinating that at just this point, right when people, as Peter is hitting us men in the middle of the forehead with the truth of our wives need to be honored and cherished for their physical vulnerabilities and their emotional makeup, that he tells us a second key thing about our wives. And that is, notice that he says right away that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Do you see that? Heirs with you of the grace of life. As if to say, and lest you think that they are somehow or in any way less than you, like weaker in the sense of less than, think again. In other words, he's saying they are joint heirs, as one of our Sunday school classes has named themselves, equal heirs of all the spiritual privileges and all the image-bearing qualities that God has bestowed on these human beings that he has made. I love how Paul would say it in Galatians 3.28. He would say there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Heirs together. Peter's saying the same thing. Don't miss this, folks. It's like Peter is trying to ward off any negative understanding of his use of the phrase weaker vessel by reminding us men right away that the women in our lives are our journey mates for life co-heirs of all the graces God gives us in life, including the gift of eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus. It's like Peter saying, hey men, don't think at all that I'm trying to diminish women when I refer to them as weaker vessels. I'm not. I'm saying all of this in a tone of equality and respect. Yes, there are creative differences between you and your wife, physical and emotional. Yes, there are even certain submission issues that happen within marriage and the church. That's all part of God's created design. But don't you think for a minute, men, that you shouldn't honor and love your wife for these things. Never forget that she is a co-heir with you of all that you've received from Almighty God through Jesus Christ. And then as if to hammer the reality of all of this home to us, Peter ends this short but potent challenge to men with this phrase. And this takes the cake. He says, so that your prayers might not be hindered. And we say, whoa. So that your prayers might not be hindered. That word hindered here is the Greek word ekopto, and it literally means to impede something, to hinder something, to thwart something. It's fascinating. It's the same word that Paul the Apostle would use when he said that I was hindered from going to this church or hindered from going to that church. Or when he said I've been hindered from coming to you, as he wrote to the church in Rome, I think, at one point. It's the same word that he used to say I've been unable to get through to you. And that's Peter's point. He's saying that when some men fail to love their wives with rich and deep understanding, 
combined with honoring them in their unique femininity and treating them as co-heirs, then their spiritual walk with God will suffer severe anemia. Their prayers will not even get through. Like Paul trying to visit a church but constantly getting cut off and impeded, men who fail to love their wives as outlined here will find that their prayers don't make it to the intended destination. That's what Peter's saying here. Or to put it in principle form so that you can take it home with you, here's what Peter is saying. And boy, this hits me hard. He says, realize that God responds to husband very similar to how husbands respond to their wives. Does that hit you hard enough? Peter is saying that almost in a tit-for-tat fashion, this is how seriously God takes our marriage covenant men, that God responds to husbands very similar to how husbands respond to their wives. It's true. To the degree and kind that a man loves his wife is to the degree that God will listen to his prayers and move in his life. Let that sink in a moment. God places such a premium on your marriage. He believes so deeply in a husband's call to love, understand, and honor his wife that he ties it directly to our spiritual lives and our walk with him. And you know, I know how some of us think. We think, well, that doesn't sound very nice, Jamie. I mean, you really tell me that God is this way? Listen closely. Yes, God is this way. And yet, please hear this. He is this way. Now, don't miss this, men, because He loves you. In other words, this is not a punitive thing on God's part. It's a restorative thing. Just like you withhold certain things from your children when they're going down a path that you know is not right for them so that you might turn them around and wake them up and get them to see the path that you do have for them, God sometimes withholds certain things from us so that we might wake up. It's called His discipline. So that we might wake up and get jarred to life and realize the destructive road that we're going down. But make no mistake, it's all about love. I love how the famous pastor Adrian Rogers, who is now with the Lord, said it years ago. I love this. He said, and I quote, God loves you so much that he will bring you to your knees by invitation or situation. You like that? He's going to bring you to your knees by invitation or situation. And it's true. He's going to get your attention somehow, whether you hear his call and respond or whether he has to shake your life. And for men who continue to dishonor their wives with selfishness and anger and lack of honor, God is going to mess with your prayer life. He's going to mess with your walk with Him in order to get your attention. But the cool thing is that Peter is saying it obviously doesn't have to be this way. I mean, though Peter ends on this note, I I just think this way. I did this last night as I was putting the finishing touch on my message. I thought, well, this is kind of a negative way to end the, uh, the, the passage here. But then I thought, well, how many words are in this passage? And I counted them. You know how many words are in the ESV? 38. 38 words in this passage. That's a bit of trivia for you, isn't it? And you know how many words are negative in this entire passage? Eight. The last eight. So obviously the bulk of Peter's information to us is positive and life-giving. The last eight are in more of a warning tone. But his whole point is that we as men can learn to selflessly and courageously understand, pour into, and love our wives. And as we do, there's profound blessing to be found. Joy in our relational and spiritual lives. And that's what he wants us to understand. I want to close this morning by uh, telling you a story. And I warn you right now that this is a story that is going to hit you in the pump. It is. Because it's a story that has moved me now for about 15 years. It has to do with a couple by the name of Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin. 
Robertson and Muriel were married in 1949, and Robertson had a dream to become a young missionary. He did, and eventually in his career, he became the president, very successful president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, now called Columbia International University in South Carolina. Over the years, in the 50s and 60s, Robertson and McQuilkin had seven children, but tragically lost one to a boating accident in the 1970s. In 1980, while vacationing with some friends, Robertson noticed that his wife repeated a story to one couple that she had just told five minutes earlier. And by 1983, Muriel's forgetfulness became so apparent that they had to stop entertaining people in their home, and she was having increased difficulty in such simple things as planning menus. Two expert diagnoses later, and they had a name for Muriel's ailment, and all of you know it now. It's called Alzheimer's disease. At this point, Robertson didn't know what to do because Muriel was going downhill fast, and you need to remember Robertson was at the very height of his career. I mean, men, think about it. Mid-50s, successful Bible college and seminary president of a burgeoning and growing seminary. He, He didn't know what to do, and yet he found it increasingly hard to care for Muriel Within just a few short years, she had to give up her radio ministry as well as most of her speaking engagements. She'd even already forgotten that she had Alzheimer's. She was going downhill so fast. He did what most men do, and that's that he thought he'd seek out the wisdom of some very trusted and respected evangelical church leaders. And most of his trusted friends urged him to consider institutionalized care for Muriel. They argued that in just a few years, Robertson, she won't even know who you are. You might as well just put her in a home, and she'll get accustomed to that environment kind of quickly. But listen to what Robertson wrote. He said, but would she? Would anyone love her at all, let alone love her as I do? I'd often seen the empty, listless faces of those lined up in wheelchairs along the corridors of such places, waiting for the fleeting visit of some loved one. In such an environment, Muriel would be tamed only with drugs or bodily restraints. Of that I was confident. And so after a lot of thought and prayer, in 1988, Robertson went to the board of Columbia Bible College and Seminary and announced that he was going to resign. But as you can imagine, the board didn't want him to resign, so they said, can we just try this arrangement? Could we hire a companion to stay with Muriel during the day, and then you can be with her in the evening? And Robertson said, we can try it. But it didn't work. By that time, the only one that Muriel knew was Robertson. is the only one that she recognized anymore. And so as many as 12 times a day, Muriel would sneak out of their home, travel the one mile to the seminary to find Robertson at his office. 12 times a day. In fact, at one point he was putting her to bed and he took her shoes off and her feet were blistered and bloodied for how many times she walked to the office that day. So shortly after that, Robertson made the decision that kind of rocked the evangelical world. I remember it when it happened to leave the presidency after 22 years in the prime of his career to care for his wife Muriel. This was in 1990. Very quickly, Muriel went, got even worse. By 1991, she couldn't comprehend much nor express any thoughts. By 1993, she was almost to a child where even her bodily movements couldn't be contained anymore. By 1994, she couldn't stand or speak or talk and was resigned to a wheelchair, but during all of that, she could still move and hug and smile, and every day she recognized her husband, Robertson. Muriel lived a very long time. She lived up until until five years ago, until 2003. And during that entire time, Robertson McQuilkin stayed with her every moment of every day and cared for his wife. At some point, Robertson had to share this with um, the student body at Columbia Bible College and Seminary. We have a recording of that event. And I want to play for you right now. And I warn you, this is going to hit you hard, but it's so powerful of an example of what Peter is talking about. I want to play for you the words of Robertson McQuilkin as he shared with the students why he was choosing to do what he chose to do. 
and then we're going to wrap up. Look up here on the screen. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me, there can be anger, she's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. I got to tell you guys a really funny story. About six weeks ago, I was in Cairo, Egypt with Fred Beasley, and we were looking to pioneer some new mission work there. It's a very large church there that I was speaking at, and they have a huge ministry center about an hour and a half outside of Cairo, and we went to visit this ministry center. It's just huge and, and, and wonderful. At one point, the senior pastor had to ditch us because he had a meeting, and so we went to the cafeteria to get some lunch, and we were sitting there, and this tour bus came in, and a bunch of people from the Brethren Church got out, and we're having a seminar there on how to do Muslim evangelism. At one point, an elderly gentleman sat across from uh, Fred and I, and Fred started a conversation with him, and at one point said, I'm Fred Beasley, and the man looked at him and said, I'm Robertson McQuilkin. And I've never met Robertson in my life, but I've heard the story for years. I've read some of his books, and I embarrassed the heck out of all of you. I ran around the table, and I'm not a hugger, and I, and I just picked up this frail old man, and I, and I gave him a big old bear hug. And I said, I've wanted to meet you all of my life. I said, I am so touched by what you did for your wife, and that has moved me for years. It's inspired me, and I just can't thank you enough. He was kind of taken back by that, as you can imagine, didn't offer me his contact information or anything like that. And so, um, you know, I, uh, but, but I, I just had to thank him for that. We had a wonderful conversation. And here he is in his 80s and, and still going strong and still talks so tenderly about his wife. Now, men, listen close. That's what honoring your wife is all about. I, I believe that, that Robertson probably honored his wife in small ways all the days before that. But when it came time to lay it down in a big way, all those small ways had taught him what it really means to honor and love her for who she is as a co-heir, for who she is even as a weaker vessel. He knew what it would take. And so here's I want to close our service here this morning. I want all of you men to stand up right now. I want all the women seated. I want all the men to stand. Please stand up right now for me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer a prayer 
for all of you as we wrap up our service that God would allow you, that He would give you grace and strength, courage, because some of you are going to need it, to really live out and apply what we're talking about here today. The reason that some of you are going to need it is because I'm not an idiot. I know that there are some of you men who have been sitting here today saying, Jamie, you don't get it. You don't understand my situation. You don't understand how hard it is to honor the woman that I'm living with. You don't understand how hard it is with all that's gone under. And and maybe I don't. I mean, I've gone on record saying I married up. I got a pretty incredible wife, and and I love honoring Kim in small ways and big ways every chance I can get. I'm, I'm just committed to that. But I also know this, and if I didn't believe this, I wouldn't be your pastor. And that is that I know that if God asks you and me to do something, that with His strength we can do it. Amen? And so this isn't a matter of whether or not I've been in your circumstances or not. This is a matter of whether God is God or not. Remember a couple weeks ago when we outlined our vision, unwavering faith, unconditional love? Men, we're at it right now. This is going to take for some of you an unwavering faith in your Savior Jesus Christ and an unconditional love for the woman God has put in your life. That's what it's going to take. But that's what Christians are made of. That's why the Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's why I'm going to pray for you right now. So would you all bow with me? Father God, if I don't miss my guess, every one of us here today, especially the men, can relate to what we're talking about. It's at least relevant to our lives. And Father, I pray that as we think about each individually what this means for us, what honoring our wives, loving her as a weaker vessel, and joining her as being a co-heir in life means for us, God, I pray you'd bring things to mind for us. Lord, for some of us men, it's simply going to be small things, just daily things that we do, a timely phone call or listening when we don't feel like listening or bringing a a cup of coffee to our wife when she's tired at the end of the day. It might mean so many small things, Lord, for us that we just show honor and deference and care for. Help us to do that. But Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there's some of us men in which it's going to mean much bigger things for us. It's going to mean things like swallowing our pride, It's going to mean things like having to forgive some pretty big things that we have been resisting forgiving. It's going to mean, Lord, having to enter into the tunnel of chaos, of communication and listening and empathy that we feel so unprepared for, and just having to enter into it anyways. And God, we've already established you would not ask us to do something that as we trust you with an unwavering faith and look to you that that, that you won't prepare us to do, that you won't equip us to do. So I pray your richest blessing upon the men here. I pray that you'd equip all of us to be the kind of men that 1 Peter 3, 7 talks about. I pray that you prepare us and equip us to be the kind of men whose prayers are heard because we know what it means to be in a healthy, loving, selfless relationship with our spouses. Help us to lead the way, God. We are indeed called to be leaders of our family. Help us to lead through loving, lead through honoring, lead through showing what Jesus-like love is all about. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you tell us in your word what you require of us. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be faithful, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name. And all the women say together, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday. Have a great day.